0: The sermon today is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 to 14. This is the word of God. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for men to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom perseveres the life of who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. thus says the Lord.
1: Amen. Thank you. Let's preach one more time for the preaching of God's word. Father, we thank you so much for showing us precisely how we can grow in wisdom. And not just how to grow in wisdom, how to get wisdom, but also what wisdom looks like, what are the attributes of wisdom, what are the characteristics of wisdom. Lord God, that you've shown us not only what wisdom looks like, how we got wisdom, but also the work of wisdom yourself, your own work in the Son, Jesus Christ. So Father, help us now see the power of your Word. Help us see the relevance of your Word. Help us see the depth of your Word so that we might become more and more transformed unto your Son. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 7 now. We're going through this passage pretty closely, so I encourage you to just keep this passage right in front of you as we're going through this. And as we said before in our series in the book of Ecclesiastes, this book uh, forces you to confront the harsh realities of life. This book forces you to look at life dead in the eye, straight up, and see all the harshness of life, and to take you out of your distractions, the things that you use to to escape reality, and forces you to confront reality. And and that's not just because the author's mean or anything like that. The author actually wants you to persevere in life. This is how you grow wise. This is how you actually become mature. You grow wise by actually not by escaping the things of life, but rather by confronting it. And in this specific passage in chapter 7, he gives us incredibly practical advice of how specifically to grow in wisdom. We've seen about aspects of it, but here in this specific passage, he's just giving us a list of advice. It's just one piece of advice after another, after another, after another. He gets incredibly practical here and incredibly concrete. So we're going to get right to it, okay? There's three points that I want to point out from today's sermon. Three points. Stick with me. First, how to get wisdom. Second, the characteristics of wisdom or what, what wisdom looks like. And third, finally, the work of wisdom, all right? So first, how to get wisdom. How does one grow in wisdom? And here begins in verse 1, a series of, and 1 to verse 6, a series of, of wisdom sayings that compare one thing to another. And, and this comparison to is that one thing is better than another. And to grow in wisdom, you got to consider the better thing. you got to pursue the better thing. And there are three things from these first six verses of how to get wisdom. Three things from these six verses, okay? The first six verses. To grow in wisdom, you have to contemplate death. That's the first thing. To grow in wisdom, you've got to endure suffering. That's the second thing. And to grow in wisdom, you need to be around a community of the wise. That's the third thing. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Death, suffering, and wisdom, all right? All the good things in life that we've got to consider today. So first, to grow in wisdom, you have to contemplate death. Consider verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. And verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay to heart. Now, the end of verse 2. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay to heart. That's the crux of this entire portion of Scripture. That's the, the thesis statement, in other words. For you to live well, You need to consider these things to heart. This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay to heart. Those who continue to live, those who want to live full lives, those who want to to live well, to live wisely, will put these things to heart. What will they put to heart? Well, that the day of death is better than the day of birth, and it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. So let's get verse 1 a bit more closely here. A good name is better than than, than a precious ointment in the day of death than the day of birth. Notice the structure again. The one thing is better than the other. A good name is better than precious ointment. And the sense here, the contrast here is that a good name signifies somebody's character, signifies the weightiness of somebody's life, the holisticness of of one's life, the substance of that life. There's much to be said about somebody's name. If you bear a good name, that means you're whole. There's integrity there. There's substance to your, to your character. There's weight to your character. And that's in contrast to precious ointment. Nice perfume. You, nice perfume is, is, is it's, it's frivolous here. It, you can say that it smells nice. You can say that it's aesthetically pleasing. It's pleasing as an aroma, but you can't say much about it. And in the same way, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Right? And you know that that's true. If you ever attended a funeral... And if you ever considered about the end of somebody's life, you know what people are saying. Maybe somebody who just passed away, her name is Sarah, and you would say Sarah was a lovely person. Sarah lived a good life. She really cared for the poor. She really cared for her parents. She was really a family-oriented kind of person. Or maybe it's the opposite. Sarah didn't live a good life. You know, she liked collecting stamps. I don't, know, I don't know what Sarah was really into. Your, in other words, if you consider the end of your life, there's a whole of the person's life that you could consider as one piece, as one whole. And that's going to be different if life went on forever. If life went on forever, there's a sense in which there's no end to your story, and so there's no summing up of that story. But if there's an end to your life, that means there's a point in time where you need to consider the fact that at the end of your life, your whole name is going to be under scrutiny. Your whole life could be considered as one narrative whole, one full package to be under scrutiny, whether it is going to end up as a good name or a bad name. That's something that confronts us, but not so with the day of birth. If you notice, especially in Asian cultures, when somebody was you know, just given birth and you considered the baby, what do you say about the baby? It looks like the mom, looks like the dad, chubby baby, heavy baby. See, there's not much to say about the baby, right? There's not yet a full life for you to actually consider the merits of the baby. You can't say that this person or this baby is a a wise baby or really love their parents. There's just no sense in which you can actually tell that yet. You can only consider that at the end of somebody's life where you can consider, is this person going to have a good name or not? So by considering death, first of all, it tells you that you have to, by the fact of death, There's a possibility of an evaluation upon your name and an evaluation upon your life. But that's not just it. Second, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. The contrast here is between the funeral home and the house of feasting, which is uh, just a way of of calling out a party, a way of calling out just laughter, drinking, good food, and enjoying time with friends. And it's saying here, almost paradoxically, right, that it's much better to attend to a funeral than it is to go to a party. It is much better to weep about death and consider and contemplate that having that in the forefront of your mind than go and attend a lovely time with your friends. You might think to yourself, is that even true? Isn't death tragic? So you got to consider the sense of bitter here. As we saw in verse two, it's the the living will lay to heart so that you can live well. So, the sense of better here is not in the sense of glorifying death or saying that death is a good thing. No, to the contrary, the sense of better here is that death causes us to become wiser in a way that feasting simply doesn't. You might have a good time and feast, you might have a good time with your friends and, and enjoy a time of laughter, but that's not going to mature you. That's not going to grow you. What ends up maturing you is a contemplation of death. You know, when you're in a seminary and you're preparing to be a preacher or a teacher of theology, a conversation that opens up oftentimes is the fact that you got to consider that you got to preach an, a funeral one day. What are you going to do during a funeral? And people are scared. People are really nervous about that because if you're preaching at a funeral, oftentimes you're thinking you have to preach about the person who just passed away. Or what if this person is not a believer? What if the person is not in Christ? And then you're really panicked about what to communicate to the people about this person. But a wise pastor once told me, Gray, if ever you were going to preach in a funeral, remember that you're not preaching to the person who's dead. The dead is not in need of preaching. You're preaching to the people who are attending there. And here's something about a funeral, friends. A funeral or someone's death has the potential to disrupt everything about your life and to disrupt the illusions about your life that you think that you would live forever, that life is just okay, and that this world isn't broken. In other words, there's something about death that disrupts your existence, that calls you out from the escapist realities that you've made up for yourself, the illusion that you've made up for yourself, and to call you completely out of there and smacks you right back into reality, right? Right? Some of you have experienced this before. Maybe you're in the middle of breakfast, and then you get a text, dad just died. Or you're in the middle of lunch at work, or you're in the middle of a dinner party, or you're in the middle of a drinking party. And no matter what time it is, what kind of event, what kind of context, the moment you get a message like that, someone just died. It shocks you out of there. It shocks you out of there. There's a sense in which you're thinking to yourself, life can't just go on normally. There's something about somebody's death, especially a loved one, a family member, someone that you deeply care about that shocks you out of your escapist realities, the illusion that you're going to live forever, and tells you, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to respond to this? Because we like to think in our secular world that life is going to continue forever, we're going to continue to be young forever. We're going to continue to just go on and progressing as we get older and older and older and as if we're never going to die. But there's something about death that just shocks you out of that and then demands you to answer the question, what are you going to do about this? And what kind of answer can you, can you, can you conjure up to make sense of something like this? Death, in other words, shocks you out of this illusion reality that you made up for yourself. Charles Taylor even says that when you, when you face the suffering of a loved one, there's, there's a sense of injustice that dawns on you that causes you to say to yourself, this is not supposed to be. This is not supposed to be. There's brokenness here. We're not meant to die, right? So everybody weeps in the first 20 minutes of up. Because you see this beautiful relationship going on, and this wedding taking place, and the adventures that they had planned together, and the piggy bank that they've stored up so that they can go on these great trips together, and then a sickness befalls the wife. And then you know deep inside your heart, that's not supposed to happen. Life isn't the way it's supposed to be. And so Charles Taylor says, tragedy and death calls us and demands for us to to, to beckon eternity to come. And you know these things inside your heart. This is what Ecclesiastes is trying to communicate to us from the very beginning. God has put eternity in your hearts. And death is a way for you to recognize that and no longer to run away from that fact. You know deep inside yourself that you're not meant to die and you're meant to live forever. And tragedy is a way to wake you up for that. But he goes on. You're not not only just going to contemplate about death. Secondly, you have to suffer for you to grow. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Sorrow is better than laughter. And again, the the sense of better here is not that sorrow is glorified and laughter is, is denigrated. No, the sense of better here is that sorrow is a much better teacher for you. Sorrow is that which causes you to be wise. Sorrow is what you need to endure, what you need to encounter, what you need to go through for you to actually grow in holiness and in wisdom rather than laughter. And so sorrow... Let me just repeat this again. We said this in numerous sermons. Sorrow is part and parcel of the Christian life. There's a pernicious teachings that's still going around today that says that once you become a Christian, you will no longer have any sorrows in this life. The moment you make that decision, life is going to be rosy for you, Things are just going to get better for you. The dark depths of your past and the depressions and the sins and all the tragedies of life, thats no longer going to be there for you. That person has not reckoned with the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. that says that sorrow is very much a part of the Christian life. And sorrow is actually a source of a fullness of heart, a gladness of heart. Sorrow in Romans chapter 5, right, says that's, it says that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And you know that this, this is the case, right? Have you ever met anybody that you, you thought to yourself, and any time you've met somebody that has never suffered before, there's just a kind of superficiality to them. There's just a sense in which you, you, you sense they haven't, been, they haven't been through much. And there's therefore a credit to the saying that the older you are, the wiser you get. And why is that the case? The older that you are, the wiser that you get. In Asia, you just think, well, of course. 60 years old, you're immediately wiser than the 30s, right? That's just a de facto fact of life. But that's not the case here. Age isn't that which automatically makes you wise. But the reality is, the more you age, the more suffering you're going to experience. And the more suffering you're going to experience, the more in maturity would you end up growing. There's just a fact of the matter. There's something about suffering, in other words, that causes you to have to endure it. And if you overcome it, that's how we grow, All right? So, Joni Erickson Tada, who wrote an online article. If you don't know Joni Erickson Tada, she she is a quadriplegic. At 17 years old, she said that uh, she, at 17 years old she was in a diving accident, and when she dove, she she became paralyzed from the waist down, from the neck down. Sorry, she she became quadriplegic. And 50 years later, she, she reflected upon back her experience. She's been paralyzed from the neck down for 50 years now. And then she's not reflecting back on the experience. What is it like to lose your youth, the prime of your life, to, to lose your dreams and, and hopes of being an athletic swimmer because she was competitively swimming? What would you do if something like that happened to you? And what would you say now that you've been suffering like this for 50 years? What kind of thoughts would you have? What kind of encouragement would you tell yourself? What kind of reflections would you have? And she said that after 50 years of life and after again and again and again suffering with bouts of depression, questioning whether or not God exists and wondering where God is on all of this, she said that after 50 years, I can safely say that I would rather have my wheelchair than not know Jesus the way I do now. I'd rather have my wheelchair than not know Jesus the way I do now. Because it is only when I suffered like that that I finally knew my need for a Savior. And how does that happen? There's something about suffering that reveals, she says there in that article, who you are. She says, before I suffered, I thought that I was a self-sufficient, strong, independent woman. But after I suffered, I knew in the depths of the hospitals, in those cold nights where I considered the fact that I'll never walk again. And I would never feel again. That I would wail. I would grow in bitterness. I would question existence. I would contemplate suicide. And I would think to myself, this is not who I am. But that's exactly who we are. Suffering, just like death, shocks us from our escapist realities of of the fact that we are okay. And we're not okay. And suffering has the potential to, to reveal exactly who we are. You see. And so suffering friends is something you have to go through to get wisdom thirdly the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning but the heart of fools is the house of mirth verse five it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools for as a clackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fools this also is vanity you got to have a community for you to grow in wisdom Verse 5, consider this. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise, singular, than to hear the song of fools. Notice that the, the, the wisdom of a single wise person, the rebuke of a single wise person, outweighs the song of fools. If you want to grow with wisdom, you have to consider the group of friends that we're in. The ones who are involving themselves in the community of the wise will grow in wisdom and will value actually rebuke but those who are continually in the community of fools will only entertain them, will only get laughter, will never actually be challenged and therefore will never actually grow. Those who are wise, in other words, are willing to expose themselves to harsh criticism, to the rebuke of those who know, those who are under the word of God together. So that's the first point, that's how we we get wisdom. Contemplate death. Second, contemplate suffering. Third, surround yourself with the community of the wise. Here's the second point, how we grow. So, what wisdom looks like, and this is in verses seven to ten. Now, here in verses seven to ten, he's going to characterize wisdom in four ways. Consider wisdom in four ways. The of wisdom in four ways. In verse seven, he's going to say that the wisdom means using money not for power, but rather to for the sake of other people. In verse eight, he's going to say that wisdom means being patient. Verse nine, wisdom means being not quick to be angry. And verse 10 means resisting nostalgia. So we're going to just go through them one by one here. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wives into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. In other words, if you want to consider what a wise person looks like, look at how he uses money. Look how he uses money. It's not just a love of money here that is being considered, but rather... How this particular person is going to be using money. And the, the two keys of how we see a person use money is whether they're gonna use it to oppress others, verse 7, right? And the second part of verse 7, whether they're gonna use money to bribe. And notice that both of these things, oppression by way of using monetary funds and bribes, are both ways of using money that use them to up to, to, to rob other people of the justice that they deserve. Consider an extortion. And extortion is actually demanding somebody so that somebody would not get the rights that they actually naturally deserve. So what's extortion? Or oppression in the form of extortion. That's the sense here. Well, perhaps you would come to somebody's home and you come with armed men and you say to them, we're going to burn down your house unless you pay us a certain sum of money. That's extortion. You're demanding money and robbing somebody of somebody that they naturally have a right to. That's extortion. Bribery, on the other hand, is, is... robbing other people's rights to something, uh, to something that they naturally have a right to by, by using money yourself, right? So if you're in line in a hospital and there's five people ahead of you and you bribe a nurse or you bribe somebody who manages the hospital, so you get ahead. You're robbing other people of their privileges of actually being ahead of you in the first place. So bribery and extortion are ways of using money that, that robs other people of the justice that is due to them. So that's the first thing you got to, In other words, use money not to oppress others, but rather use money to elevate others. Use money not to rob other people of their justices, but use money for the purposes of justices. Verse 8, it says there that wisdom looks like someone who's being patient in spirit better than being proud in spirit. And, And patience there is specifically tethered to, notice, pride. The contrast of patience is not impatience in a simple way, but rather the contrast of patience is pride. And that's an interesting contrast that you want to note. In other words, the root of impatience is a proud spirit that says that I know what's good for me, I know when things are supposed to happen, I know how things are supposed to go, and they're not going my way. They're not going my way, and therefore, I'm going to lash out. I'm going to become angry, which is connected to verse 9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And The Bible doesn't condemn anger in a simple way, right? Because God is angry, but God's anger is never undue to it. God's anger is never coming at the wrong time. God's anger is a patient anger. He never overreacts to anything. He's not subject to passions. But those who are wise recognize that that, that there's a humility that they need and this humility tells them, I don't know what's best for me. I don't know what's best for mankind. I don't know what's best in terms of God's timing and what should happen to me. Rather, I need to be humble and subject myself and understand that God is the one who determines all things. I'm not the one who's in control, and I'm not the one who's the wisest here. You see, all of these uh, advices, 7, 8, and 9, is connected to the initial command to consider it better to go to the house of mourning and to consider death better than birth to produce wisdom in you. If it is the case that death is coming for every single one of us, why would you oppress your neighbor? Why would you extort somebody that you're in the same boat with? You're heading to the same place. You and your neighbor, you're both heading to the same place. You're in the same boat. You're both in death row. Why would you oppress someone else? Why would you be impatient towards another person if you both know that you're both sinners under the sun, living in borrowed capital, that you're both heading to the same direction? Why would you be angry at someone else as if you were any better? Because you know that death is the end of all humankind. You see, when you consider the death and suffering as the lot of every single human person, it causes you to not want to oppress others, it causes you to be patient in the midst of adversity, and it causes you to be patient with others as well because you know that there's really enough suffering in this world. Don't compound suffering unnecessarily. And verse 10, wisdom means resisting nostalgia. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Why were the former days better than these? The sense of verse 10 here is the kind of nostalgic feeling when someone comes up and says or feels in their hearts, you know, I wish I were back in the golden days. Everything was just better. I remember back then when I was in high school when I was in college or in our early days during our, our, our honeymoon years or something like that, there's this nostalgic longing for the past as if the, the past had always been better than the present. And that actually creates a kind of bitterness in you because now you're always constantly comparing the present with the so-called golden years of the past. But have you ever noticed, and C.S. Lewis pointed this out in a famous passage, that when you go back to the places and memories that you hold so dear to your heart nostalgically, that they're never as great as you remember them to be? I just visited my old college and I remember I just had great memories of writing essays without any disturbance. And and the glory of God always befalling upon me every day when I went to college, you know. I really felt the presence of the Lord everywhere. And I visited the old university. I'm like, huh, it's really not that great. Uh, You know, I see the the freshmen and the sophomores who were exactly where I was at. And then I would hear them talk. And I was like, yeah, I'm definitely not 19 anymore. Uh, I, I, I don't relate to that anymore. I don't relate with that experience anymore. But yet at the same time, before I went back, I held this university in my own mind as just the golden age, right? Where everything was just okay in my life. Are we tempted to think that way? Are we tempted to completely always compare the present to the past and therefore bemoan our existence in the present and say, if only things were just like it was back then. The author is saying that's Not from wisdom. It's not from wisdom. First of all, death at all has been around in the past. You were just not exposed to it yet, perhaps. Second of all, suffering at all has been there. And again, perhaps you were not just exposed to the past. And there's something about your memories about the past that actually overdoes the past in the sense that when you can come back to it, it's never living up to your expectations. And again, maybe nostalgia is not supposed to lead you to the past and, and, and sulk and compare yourself to the past. But rather, this nostalgia is a memory trace of the fact that, again, you're not meant for this world. So third, wisdom considers the work of God. Look at verse 13 here. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In a day of adversity, consider... God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Wisdom, here Solomon is saying, will prioritize contemplation of death, would prioritize loving people over using people for money, would prioritize uh, patience over pride, will prioritize not becoming angry, and it will resist nostalgia. But there's a point at which wisdom... Will consider its own limitations. In verse thirteen, it says, "Suddenly, Solomon here, or the author of the Ecclesiastes, doesn't give you an advice. He asks a rhetorical question because he's assuming that you won't know the answer to this. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? Right. So, in other words, Solomon, up until this point, is giving us advice, giving us very sure statements of what wisdom looks like, giving us." Sure characteristic of what wisdom looks like, right? But in verse 13, it's almost like he pivots and he says, there's still something that wisdom can't seem to find out. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? And he repeats this again, actually, in verse 20. Look at what it says in chapter 7, verse 20. If your your Bible's in front of you, just look one page over. It says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And it is upon contemplating the sins of humankind, the crookedness of this life, right? In verse 23, he says this, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Thou which has been as far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? In other words, so Solomon is, is, is confident about what wisdom ought to look like. Confident about how to get wisdom, but once he gets to the issue of sin specifically, the crookedness of humanity, the evil in, in, in all of humanity, it's almost like he tosses his hands up into the air and he says, Who can figure this out? Who can figure this out? Who can make straight the crooked? It's almost as if talking to the the air, there's no reversing this. There's no reversing the crookedness that is in our hearts. We can try, in other words, to contemplate death. We can try to endure suffering. We can try to, to cultivate patience. We can try to resist anger and resist nostalgia. But at the end of the day, wisdom knows its own limitations. What can make crooked, what can make straight what has been made crooked? And friends, that's precisely the question that is deepest within our hearts. What can eradicate the evil that is within us, and what can eradicate the evil that we see around us? But you see, friends, Solomon was stuck in this question, and he was, an, uh, he was unable to answer this question because he himself is not a righteous man, like it was in verse 20. I like think it was recognized in verse 20. He himself was given wisdom, but wisdom was not natural to him. He was graced wisdom at a young age, yes, and he was one of the wisest men that walked on earth, yes. But those who are still sinners granted wisdom, as much wisdom as God has given him. He could still not figure out how it is that he could overcome the sins of his own heart and the sins of humanity, friends. And here's the answer to verse 13. When you're considering the work of God, know that there's someone else hundreds and hundreds of years after Solomon. There's someone else, hundreds and hundreds of years, that's not Solomon, who came, but he wasn't someone who was a sinner who was given wisdom by God, but rather he was wisdom himself who became a man. Here's someone who didn't just have wisdom because God has graced him with wisdom, but here's someone who was wisdom from eternity past, who became a man so that he would embody wisdom for you. And here's exactly what we see in Christ Jesus. When Christ came to the world, he embodied everything that this text had told you about what wisdom looks like. He lived out his life by picking and singling out the focus of his life, namely what? His own death. The Son of Man had come to suffer and die and the third day he will rise again. He was clear in his mission and it was precisely by living in light of his death that he was was enabled to continue to resist the temptations that were thrown his way. The Son of Man was also a man of sorrows. He understood that it is precisely by overcoming the sufferings that came to his life that he would overcome the cross and death itself and be given the glory of character that no one else would attain. And it was the Son of Man himself that could not be overcome by money, could not be tempted by the temptations of the devil. He was not the one who was impatient with others. He was not angry when it was unduly, when it it was not proper to be angry, but rather he was precisely the one who was wisdom himself, who set death before him, who overcame suffering. And he is the one who embodies precisely what Solomon is talking about here. Because friends, Solomon isn't just giving you advice. Solomon is pointing you to the one who is wisdom himself. And so it's not enough for us to simply pick up our own selves and to live out this book and to try and simply become wise, we got to point ourselves to the one who is wisdom himself. He has lived out this life for you because you could never have made yourself straight. The one who was straight became crooked on the cross so that those who were crooked might now become straight. And that was the wisdom of God. That's the work of God that wisdom considers. Because The one who was wise, friends, did not die for his own sins, but he died for the sins of you and me, the unrighteous, including Solomon himself. Let us pray. Father, thank you for for revealing to us, Lord God, not merely the words of wisdom, but rather wisdom himself who came in the flesh and board our own sins, so that we might become straight again. Father, this is a gift of grace, and help us not spurn it, and help us live wisely in light of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and see.